Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith unto this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our friends, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, which more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, been, we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Rich. Um, before I start uh, um, the prayer, I just want to make a brief announcement so you all understand what I'm praying for. I was on the phone with, um, with Beth Elder this week, and I asked how they were doing, and her mom, Ruth, uh, was actually in the hospital, and uh, she had become dehydrated, and, and her electrolytes got off, and she started swelling. It wasn't doing well, and so uh, she had to go in the hospital, and then they had to quarantine her for 14 days. And so uh, she is, uh, she's got uh, dementia and wasn't exactly sure who Ruth was when she called and that kind of thing. So um, when Beth called, I'm sorry, uh, she'll be coming home, I think, pretty soon, the next today or tomorrow or something like that. But um, 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 Beth asked us to pray for her and for her recovery, and uh, so that's that's one of the things we're going to pray for. The other thing I want to pray for is, is the uh, Farrells, um, uh, Heather and Troy. Uh, remember last week we prayed uh, they had come down with COVID-19, and uh, so just an update, they're, they're now kind of heading into the recovery stage, so um, that's what we'll be praying for, those two things. So let's let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, you are indeed holy, holy, holy. And uh, Father, in your wisdom, you've allowed this pandemic to spread, and you have purpose in it that we can't understand or we can't see right now. But Lord, I know as we sang that song um, about your holiness, echoing the words from the book of Revelation, um, Lord, I just missed hearing the other saints singing. And so Father, we pray that you would, um, for the sake of your church, be drawing this pandemic to a close soon. Um, it's distressing to see the numbers of cases continue to rise, uh, deaths stabilize, and hospitalizations climb. Uh, so, Lord, um, we pray for your mercy on, on the world, um, on our nation, on our state, on our county, and on our city, Lord. 
would you, for the sake of your church, for the, the glory of the gospel, uh, bring healing and restoration. And so um, let us soon be meeting together again. And Father, um, I want to pray for Ruth Howell and uh, her recovery from the hospital, Lord. I thank you for uh, a life that she has walked with you. And uh, Lord, now that uh, her mental capacity is kind of diminished, um, Lord, I, I pray that the thing that remains at the center is her faith in you, that she continues to see and to know that you are real, as we were just singing. And uh, Lord, would you be with Beth as she cares for her mother? What a sacrificial love that she has. Um, I pray that you would be with her in her care for her mom and, uh, and watch over them. And then, Father, we want to pray for the Farrells, and uh, we ask uh, your mercy, your continued mercy on them. Thank you, Lord, that the respiratory distress wasn't as bad as, as it has been in other cases. Uh, Lord, as they are finishing their time in quarantine, uh, I pray that the indications are that they will have recovered and be okay. Um, and Father, thank you that Troy is kind of leading the way in that. Uh, please continue to strengthen them. And Lord, I pray that through their experience, they would have stories to tell those who they work with. Uh, about the true and the living God and how he cares for his people and watches over them. And Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word? Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, we need you to understand and to grasp it. So uh, Lord, would you accomplish those things in our hearts and our minds? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're starting now on Romans chapter 5. And um, the first sentence there, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, is kind of like the summary statement for what comes next. Uh, he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, um, in this case, when the word therefore is there, it, it's pointing back to everything that we've learned so far about uh, justification by faith. And so let's kind of walk backwards to what we learned uh, last week what we saw was there's a reason, there's a purpose that God chose to justify us by faith. And uh, that, that reason, first of all, is because law won't work. Uh, justifying us by our performance won't do it. Um, we saw that what law brings is wrath, not justification. The other thing we saw was that God wanted it to rest on his grace. And we'll talk about grace again this morning, but it, it has to rest on his grace. That was his purpose. But ultimately, in the end, the reason that God chose to justify us by faith is so that he would receive glory. So that was kind of what we saw last week is why did God choose to justify us by faith? Um, so that those things might happen. And then at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of chapter four, uh, what we saw was God has not just invented this justification by faith recently, but this is something that he's been doing. And so what we saw at the beginning of chapter 4 was Abraham had been justified by faith. And, and it wasn't just available to Abraham. Abraham was this example to us that justification by faith would be available to Jew and Gentile alike because Abraham was the father of the Jews and the Gentiles who believe. Um, we also saw David was in there too. So there, this wasn't something that God does sporadically or, or once in a great while. It's something that goes on. And then... At the end of chapter 3, we saw, we got this, the, the definition of what justification by faith means. And what justification is, is justification is not only a declaration of innocence. It is a declaration of righteousness. It's a legal term used in courts. And so what we saw at the uh, end of chapter 3 
was God takes this foreign righteousness, this righteousness that's not ours, that belongs to somebody else, and he assigns it to us. He puts it on us. And so that's what it means to be justified. And the way he chose to do that was through faith, that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapter 5, um, verse 1, he, he starts off with all of that in mind, and he says, therefore, since all of that is true, since we have been justified by faith, he assumes that we have been justified, that we have faith. What's the result of that? The result is we have peace with God. Um, law brought wrath. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, law invites wrath. It brings, it brings wrath. But we have been justified by faith. So we're not under wrath. We have peace with God. Now, verse 2 there's a lot packed in here. So what I want to do is kind of go through verse two and pick it apart, look at the technical parts, and then at the end we'll bring it all back together and, and hopefully um, help it make sense when we draw it back together. So here's verse two. Through him, that's through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's a lot in there. So let's let's work through this slowly. Through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access uh, by faith into this grace. So what grace is, when we talk about God's grace, um, the kind of older definition is God's unmerited favor. And it's not wrong, but I, I don't think it kind of helps in, in modern language. When I talk about the grace of God, what I think of is God's love toward us unearned. It wasn't that we were good enough for him to love us. It was simply that he decided he was going to fix his love on us. And then what we'll see as we go through this is when God loves us, it isn't that he puts a picture of us on his mantelpiece and just smiles at it once in a while. God's love is, is the form of love that we find in the Bible, which is not only emotion. It starts there, but true love actually is active. It does something. And so this grace by which we stand is, is God working in and through us. He's fixed his love on us, and he is doing something. We'll see that in the next verse. So we have access to this faith, this uh, grace by faith. So why is it then that we have a, this access to this by faith if it's unearned? Well, because, don't forget, God earlier um, had to be just in the justifier, chapter 3, verse 26. Um, Paul was, was concerned about the issue of God declaring sinners just. Um, how can he do that and still be a righteous God? And so we have access to this grace because of what Jesus does. Jesus has done something so that God could look at us, remain just and righteous, and say, I love these people, and I'm going to justify them. I'm going to make them right in my sight. So it's through Jesus that we've obtained access by faith into this grace. And, and it's grace in which we stand. So like I was saying, when God fixes his love on us, it's not simply his positive feelings toward us. It, it does something in our lives. It's, it's a power that's at work in us as we stand in God's love. And so this grace, which we've obtained through Jesus, is what we stand in, what we're, we're accomplishing now, what we're doing now. And, and one of the things that we'll see is, it would be easy to stand um, still. Uh, if nothing is disturbing you, it's easy to stand still. But to stand fast where you're not being moved, that takes something special. Imagine um, 
standing, well, we're all here in the Antelope Valley, or most of us anyway, you know what the wind is like. Um, imagine trying to stand still on, on a top of a hill out here while the wind's howling. It takes work to stand there. So this, this, this standing firm, this, this grace in which we stand is God's power enabling us to remain standing there. So we have this grace in which we stand. And the next phrase is a little bit dense as well. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Um, the word rejoice is, uh, is actually the word boast. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates it as boast. Um, we boast in the glory of God. Um, what do you boast in? What would you boast about? Um, you would boast about something that you're proud of, something that you delight in, something you, you're thrilled about. Um, when the local softball team wins the big tournament, you would boast about that because you're thrilled that they had done that. Um, when, when your child wins the spelling bee, you would boast in that because you're proud of their child. They worked really hard to do that. Uh, so that's what we mean by boasting. And I think the word here, translating as rejoice, is probably good because when we think of boasting, we think about me telling you something great about myself. Let me tell you how wonderful I am in that I did this thing. And so that's kind of how we think of boasting is in a negative way, but it could have a positive aspect as well. And so maybe a better way to put this would be we rejoice. Uh, so it is something that you are delighted in uh, because what we saw in chapter three, verse 27 is boasting is excluded. And in that sense, it was boasting about the self. Um, I have complied with God's law, therefore I am just, look how great I am. That's boasting, and that's excluded by, by the law of faith. In other words, faith means you can't boast. But here, boasting is a good thing. Rejoicing is a good thing. We rejoice. What do we rejoice in? What is it that we find thrilling and delightful? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Um, now, when we think of hope, uh, I think often what we think of hope is, is, well, it probably won't happen, but it'd be nice if it did. Um, so, look, your son broke his arm skiing uh, this winter. Do you think he's going to be able to pitch fast pitch in uh, spring training? Well, we hope he will. And, and what that means is he probably won't, but it would be nice if he did. That's how we use the term hope. That's not the biblical definition of hope. When the Bible talks about hope, the Bible is saying there is something that we haven't received yet, something we can't quite see yet, but we have an assurance that it is coming. It's something that we know we will, get, we will lay hold of. So it's something we don't have now, something we can't clearly see, but something that we're reaching for and that we will have. So what he's saying, what Paul is saying is we rejoice, we, we are thrilled, we delight in the hope. The, the promise, the, the taste, the looking forward to of something that will be sure. Well, the hope of what? Well, the hope of the glory of God. So God's glory is really important term that we, we need to, to kind of drill into our brains. When we talk about God's glory, what we're talking about is his character, his attributes, his holiness, who he is. And, and when we think about those things of who he is, He's always been those things. He doesn't change, but his glory is those things being displayed in the world. Um, so imagine from uh, Isaiah 6, 3, um, Isaiah has seen this vision of God and his, his, uh, the train of his robe fills the temple and he's surrounded with angels and the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. 
the earth is filled with his, and you would expect him to say holiness because he's holy, holy, holy. But it's not filled with his holiness. It's filled with his glory. So what they're saying is his ultimate attribute is his holiness. And when it comes to filling the earth, that's expressed in his glory. So when we think about the glory of God, what we think of is all of his attributes, who he is, what he's like, put on display. I think John Piper still has the best definition of it. He says, the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. The public display of his infinite beauty and the worth of God is what I mean by glory. So that's what we need to think of is this glory of God um, that is on display. And, and one of the best ways for us to talk about the glory of God, I think God has given us a tool to kind of begin to express it in, in the, the faulting, you know, halting way that we do it, which is in song. And so that's why we sing. That's why it's important that we sing when we gather together is because that's the, the most poetic and, and beautiful way to express the glory of God. So a, a song that came to mind um, has glory in the title, and it expresses this idea of God's attributes on display. Um, it's the glory of the cross by Sovereign Grace Music. And, and one of the verses says, what wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect land who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. There is something lyrical about that that captures that that inexpressible attribute of God called his wisdom that would do something that appears to human wisdom to be end, destruction. The, his son died on a cross, but what he accomplished, what God's wisdom accomplished in de Jesus' death on the cross was that he would then gather those who opposed him around his, his throne. And so that's God's wisdom, his, his, his glory on display in the world. Um, it, it's hard to, to get a hold of that sometimes, but what we have is we have the hope of that. So let me stop here and kind of gather verse 2 back together and see if we can express it in a way that, um, with different words, but hopefully it captures the idea. So as, as we gather verse 2 back together, here's what I think Paul is getting at. Jesus has brought us into a relationship with God where we eagerly look forward to delighting in God and all his perfections. So that's what he means when he says we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're in this relationship with God. He has fixed his grace on us. His unmerited love, his unearned love has been fixed on us. So now we have a right, in, right relationship. And because of that, we are eagerly looking forward to, anticipating, desiring to see all of God's perfections. And that, that's what we're longing for. So this is what justification is all about, is so we can have that, that relationship. Um, that's why God has justified us. And that's what I think this section of Romans is talking about, is last week we saw why did God choose justification by faith, but it didn't answer why did God decide to justify anybody. He didn't have to. He wasn't required to justify anybody. The world is in utter rebellion against him. And yet he decides, I'm going to justify some, some people. And what we saw last week is why did he pick to do it by faith? Ultimately, because it would bring him the maximum amount of glory. It would show his glory the most. And so this, that's what we're seeing this week is Paul is saying, 
He did it by grace, which is what he promised last week, for God's glory. So that's the promise that we have. That's why he decided that he would justify anybody, is so that we might delight in him and, and be thrilled with his, his beauty. But here's the thing. We're not there yet. Um, we haven't arrived at that point where we see God in his full glory. That's a promise for the future. And so what then is life like now? Well, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. So here's the condition that we're in now. We were unrighteous. We were ungodly. We were opposed to God. God extended his grace to us and he justified us. And so now where are we at? Well, where we're at is we're not quite to the place where we will be. We still have a future to look forward to. And in the meantime, we have suffering. So how is it that we could rejoice or boast in our suffering? Uh, we boast in the glory of God. How can we boast in our suffering? Well, what, what helps us to boast in our suffering or rejoice in our suffering, which doesn't mean um, just love it, you know, the, the, the suffering that we go through, we just really enjoy it. What helps us to boast in it is we know because God has brought it to us that it's not meaningless. There, there, it's not pointless that we are suffering. Because, don't forget, we stand in grace, right? Didn't he say that in the last verse? We stand in grace, and that grace in which we stand has not been forgotten because we're suffering. So there's a tension there between what we think we should have and what we do have, and why are they in tension? Well, there's purpose there. There's a reason. So we're able to rejoice in them, though not delight in them, because we know God is allowing them for a reason. And so that's what Paul is going to help us to understand. Why do we suffer now if we're justified? He says, suffering produces endurance. So like I was saying a minute ago, standing still is very different than standing firm, isn't it? If you think about it, standing still, anybody can stand still. Well, except for maybe like four-year-olds. Um, they have a hard time standing still. But you can stand still. But to stand firm means that you're resisting something. Something is pressing against you. Something is, is trying to drive you off of that spot. So it's, it's more difficult to stand firm when a crowd is rushing past you. Um, it, it's more difficult to stand firm when the rain and the wind are beating against you and trying to drive you out. It, it's, it's harder to stand still when the ground beneath you is, is rumbling. It's really hard to stand still when your legs have grown weary and you, and you just want to sit down for a minute. But here's what the point that Paul makes is this suffering that God has allowed to, uh, to happen in our lives, it does something. It produces endurance. As we continue to resist those, those problems that come and, and hit us over and over again, as we get used to standing there, we begin to learn endurance. So God has justified us by faith not by works, but because he's justified us and we're now in the grace that, that he has for us, he's beginning to work in our lives and beginning to shape us into a different type of person. So he allows suffering so that we will learn endurance. We will learn to stand up and to take it again and again and again because we have our eyes fixed on something else. So what does endurance do for us? I mean, endurance is pointless if it doesn't go somewhere. 
Well, endurance, Paul says, produces character. And the New American Standard translates it as proven character. So what is character? Well, character is the little things you do every day, one thing after another after another. Every action that you do each day is your character. It shows your character. And proven character then would be doing those little things every day, one at a time, and doing them with integrity and doing them with um, right focus in your mind. So your character then begins to form, is, is formed in, um, in the endurance that you, you suffer through. And what it produces is this person who is going to walk in accordance with who he is now. Who, who are you now that you have been justified by faith? That's the character that you're called to walk in. So the sufferings and the afflictions and the tribulations that hammer against us actually work to God's purpose in shaping our character, in shaping those moment-by-moment, day-by-day decisions that we make. So on to verse uh, 5, he says, what does character do for you? So I have a, a, a shaped character. Well, character is what actually produces that hope. And, and what it takes is it takes that firm resolve, making the right decisions repeatedly, one after another after another. And how does that produce hope? Well, because what you're thinking is, I want to do the right thing now because I'm looking forward to who I will be in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing God in all his glory. So I don't want to do things that would drive me away from that. I want to do things that drive me towards it. And so that's the hope that we have again. It's the same hope that we mentioned last verse or verse before. And he says um, that this verse does not put us to shame. Uh, The New American Standard says it does not disappoint. Uh, The hope is not resting on our performance, right? It's not, you know, did I make the right decision um, today? Well, I made a bad decision at one point or, you know, a selfish decision or something. That's great because our hope doesn't rest on us. It doesn't rest on our performance. What does it rest on? It rests on the fact that we're standing in God's grace. And therefore, that hope will never let us down. It, It can't. Why? Why can't it? If I'm messing up and stumbling and doing some things right and some things wrong, why is it that the hope that I have doesn't disappear when I mess up? Well, because we're standing in grace, but even better than that, where where he goes in the end of verse 5 is, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So God's love has been poured into our hearts. Is it God's love as in our love for God? Or is it God's love as in the love that God has for us? I I think it's the love that God has for us. And you'll see as we go through that, that's really what's going on. So God takes his love, his grace, and pours it into our hearts. And and, and he does it not in a a sparing way. The King James says, shed abroad. Uh, So it's poured out into our hearts. In other words, it wasn't there to begin with. And then it is because God has poured it into our hearts. So this is something that God has done after he's justified us. He's filled us with his love. And how does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit. It's God's work in the Holy Spirit to shed his love, to put his love into our hearts, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's tremendous good news. Put this together for a second and imagine what's going on. God has sent his son. So God the Father sent God the Son to take God's wrath off of us. And then to seal us in that, God the Spirit is given to us. 
So God has conspired with himself to save us from ourselves. And so therefore, we will not be disappointed because it doesn't rest on our performance. It rests on his grace. It rests on his work. It rests on what he has done. So the challenges that we face are no proof that God has abandoned us. They don't say, well, God cut us off. He must be mad at me today. The, the, the challenges that we face, the sufferings that we go through, are actually intended to show us that God is working in our lives, that, that he is doing something in us. So when we consider the, the, the sufferings and the endurance and the character and the hope, what we have to keep in mind is that is not justification. Justification is a legal declaration by God that we are righteous, and it comes by faith, not by our actions. The actions flow out of that justification. They are the fruit of that justification. And those are something that we can rejoice in, something that we can hope in, because it's still leading us to that ultimate purpose of knowing God's glory. So that's what God has done in us. This is one of the reasons um, that he is working in us to justify us is so that he can shed his love abroad in our hearts so that we can grow into that. What Paul goes into the next half of this is he's going to show us what God's love looks like. What is the height? What is the glory, the beauty of God's, um, uh, God's love? And so verse six, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's kind of his introduction statement to this next thought. Uh, while we were still weak, we were unable to do anything about this. Why? Because we didn't stand in grace, because God's hope, love wasn't poured into our heart, because we didn't have the Holy Spirit. We were weak. We were following our own desires, our own lusts, our own loves, our own passions, instead of following who we were made to be. So when we think about seeing that glory of God, that the beauty of who God is, don't forget, before we were justified by faith, we had exchanged that glory for something far less. Uh, what Paul said in, in the beginning in verse uh, chapter 1 was that we exchanged that glory for the image of man and, and animals and that kind of stuff. Well, what did we personally exchange that glory for before we came to know Christ? Was it for uh, our own reputation? Um, I, I just want to look cool before everybody else. That was my thing is, is I was anxious to look good before everybody else. And, and I would sacrifice who God was because I didn't really know or care and instead focus on me. Well, that's that horrible. That's a, a short sell, isn't it? Um, that I would look good. That's fleeting. Um, maybe it's um, the, the position we have at work or in the family or, or in the community that we might look good. We substitute the glories of God, his love, his grace, his wrath, his justice for these simpler things. Um, while we were in that condition, while we were that way, Christ died for the ungodly. So what he's introducing is this idea of how does God love us? How does he care for us? Now, verses 7 and 8 generate some discussion, and uh, let me explain them a little bit and then help us kind of see them correctly. So he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die in verse 7. So the discussion that's raised there is, well, why would somebody die for a good person but not die for a righteous person? Um, what's the difference be some, between somebody who's righteous and somebody who's good? Is there a significant difference there? What does Paul mean by that? And so there are a number of positions and, and way too much ink spilled on it. Um, 
I think what happens is if you get into those little nitpicky details, you wind up focusing on the tree instead of seeing the forest. So verse 8 will help us back up a little bit. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's point, if we can try to back up and grab the tree, the forest instead of the tree, what Paul is contrasting here is human love, which may or may not decide if it cares enough about somebody, but only a good person, and God's love who would go after his enemies and go after sinners. So um, the example that I think of uh, is a Clint Eastwood movie called Gran Torino. Now, I want to warn you up front, Gran Torino is a hard movie to watch. There is a lot of language. Um, There are some really coarse joking between friends in it. And then at the beginning, the racism is just over and in your face. Um, So why would you watch it? Well, it kind of sounds like people outside the church. That's kind of how they are. Um, But the reason that I stuck with it is because in the end, there is a redemption in it. There is a redeeming thing. So here's the story. Clint Eastwood directed and starred in Gran Torino. He stars as Walt Kowalski. And Walt is a a Korean War veteran who uh, worked in the auto industry and is now retired. His wife has recently died. And his neighbors now are Asian. And he hates them. He just with the famous Clint Eastwood scowl, he just kind of looks at him. He utters racial slurs at them. He just doesn't like them because he fought in Korea. He fought against Asians, and so all Asians must be horrible. Um, but despite his, uh, himself, he winds up befriending this family, and especially the young boy, the, the teenage boy who is part of the family, and eventually becomes a father figure to this young man and begins to to teach him life lessons. And it's kind of beautiful to watch Walt change that way. The problem is an Asian gang has moved in and is pressuring this young man to join. And the pressure is getting intense and the gang is being gang-like. And so Walt devises a plan where he can rescue this family from the gang. And what he does in the end is he gets himself killed by the gang so that they will be arrested, the family will be protected, and they'll be set free. Now, Eastwood, when he directed it, he didn't want you to miss what Walt had done. And when Walt is killed at the end, as he falls, he falls backward, cruciform, uh, his legs together and his arms straight out. And and just to make it even more poignant, as he's dying, his, his hands are visible, and you see blood begin to pool in his palms. And it looks like the stigmata, the marks of Christ. And so I think what Eastwood is, is trying to picture there is Walt is this kind of savior kind of thing. Um, why do I bring that up? Well, I think that shows much better human love than it does divine love. And here's the reason. Because when Walt was in Korea, he didn't die for the North Koreans in order to liberate them and save them. He fought them. They were his enemy. He tried to kill them. And when it came to his neighbors, he didn't welcome them in until he had a love for them and a care for them. And he, he had developed this father relationship with this boy. And then he was willing to die for them. If the boy had joined the gang early on, Walt would have continued to sneer and and use racial slurs. He would continue to hate them. But once he loves them, then he'll go and die for them. And here's what, what Paul is telling us in our verse. God shows his love for this, for us. uh, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in other words, the difference between Walt and Christ is Walt waited until he loved the family and then he died for them. Jesus looked and he said, these people are opposed to me. They're sinners. They're weak. They're enemies. 
And I'm going to go to them. I'm going to go enter into their position. I'm going to go find them. I'm going to die for them so that they can be justified, so that they can be brought back. So it wasn't he thought we were kind enough or we were nice enough that we, he would suddenly decide to do it. It was these people are violently opposed to me, but I don't want them to be. I love them even though they're my enemies. And so I'm going to die for them to draw them to me. So this is what God's love looks like is God doesn't wait until we have shaped up and look good and look pretty and, and we have gone, oh, maybe I'll be interested in God before he dies for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet opposed to him, while we were yet under his wrath, Christ died for us. Nobody does that. Nobody goes to their enemy and says, I'm going to die for you to rescue you. What you do for your enemy is you try to destroy them. God's love is so different, is so unapproachable, it's so unearthly that Christ would die for us. So verse 9, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we have been, what have we been saved from? What did Jesus die to save us from? Was it our own bad decisions? Well, yeah, that'll, hopefully that'll do that. He'll, he'll instill in us a growing wisdom and, and, and uh, um, endurance and character. That's, that's part of it. But what Paul says is the real problem that we faced, the ultimate problem that we faced was not that sin was going to never satisfy us. You can sin well enough to keep it going to fool yourself for a very long time. What Jesus Christ died to save us from was the wrath of God, God's very wrath, his, his own anger at us. So listen to what Paul has said so far in Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the righteousness of men. Romans 2, 5, because of your hardened, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And 4.15, which we recently saw, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Jesus died to save us from God's anger, his righteous anger at us, his righteous anger at our sin. So again, that picture of God conspiring together to save us. God the Father, who has wrath on people and is storing up that wrath for the day of judgment, sends his son. His son lovingly goes in and dies for those objects of wrath in order to make them objects of love. And the Holy Spirit then comes in. God the Holy Spirit comes in and seals us for that. He keeps us in that love. He, he helps us to walk in that love. So that's what we have been saved from. And then verse 10, he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Um, when I heard that verse, I always thought saved by his life. Um, I, I usually applied that phrase to what's called in some circles the great exchange. Uh, Christ takes our sin and dies for it, and we take his righteousness. Well, what righteousness does he have that he can give to us? Well, the righteousness that he lived from the time he was born until the time he was executed, he kept God's law. He obeyed perfectly. And that's what I thought about, thought was being talked about here, saved by his life, that his life was credited to us. 
But in a little more careful reading that I've done recently, I don't think that's what he's getting at. Um, because he says that we've been reconciled by his death and we will be saved by his life. So what does he mean being saved by his life? Well, I think it's talking about his resurrection life, his, his fact that he has come back. Um, you remember earlier, Paul said that we were justified by his resurrection. Um, what does he mean by justified by his resurrection? What it means is because Jesus has been raised, because he has come back to life, that that life is now available to us. Um, what we'll see next week is that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new representative of his people who, unlike Adam, didn't sin when faced with temptation. And so when it says that we will be saved by his life, what it means is that we, as we are in Christ, we are now represented by a new Adam who represents us in righteousness. And that's what I think he's getting at is that resurrection of Jesus proved that he was the son of God, that he was raised to life and he is the new Adam who will give life instead of death to people. But I'm preaching next week's sermon, so I better back off. And so the last verse then, more than that, more than that, more than Jesus, the Son of God, dying to save us from our sins, from the wrath that was to come, more than we will be saved by his life, more than that. What's more important than that? We also rejoice in God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings, and now we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The point of God saving us was that he might shower his love on us. He might pour it abroad into our hearts, that he might lead us to feel and experience the love that he has. And in the end, he wants us to rejoice in him, to have that thrill in who he is, to delight in him, to look at what Jesus has done, to acknowledge I am a sinner saved by grace, and to rejoice in that, and then to look to God and say, you reconciled me with the one who had wrath. You reconciled me to the righteous judge who would be right and absolutely true to judge me at this very moment, and you came and you reconciled me to him. You made it right for me to be with him. That's the ultimate purpose. So this whole section, this whole part of chapter 5, was about we are justified by faith for the sake of love for God's love for us, and that we might express love to him. It's not some dry, dusty, boring, academic subject. This is the heart blood of who we are. God loves you. He, he has fixed his love on you before you were even worthy of it. And he has sent his son to redeem you, and he has granted you what you need to be justified by faith. That's why we are justified by faith. That's the point of this. This is Paul's gospel. This is the point that he's been making through this whole thing. And so as we look next week, he's going to kind of answer, well, how did we wind up in this bad situation to begin with? And he'll begin to unpack that for us. But the important thing that we need to remember is we are justified by faith for love, for the sake of love, for the reason of love, that we might enjoy him more fully. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit is, is working in us to pour into our hearts your love for us. Lord, that we might know and trust and actually believe that despite the struggles, despite the temptations, despite the, um, the afflictions, the tribulations, despite the suffering, Lord, you love us. And Lord, that that would lead us 
after having been justified by faith, to begin to live the life that you have called us, what are we supposed to be like now that we're made new? And Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for living in our hearts. Thank you for shedding that, that love abroad, for scattering it like seed throughout our hearts. And Lord, we pray that we would not resist that, that we wouldn't fight against it, that we wouldn't frustrate you, but Lord, that we would accept that and that we would rejoice in God that we would rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we would delight in those things that we see, that we might know them more fully. Lord, make this a reality in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.